Welcome to All About HR. I'm your host, Tom Horn, and I'm on a journey to learn about all things HR. I'm documenting my conversations with thought leaders, HR professionals, and real employees about everything from recruiting, workplace of the future, benefits, you name it. We're all about HR. Let's go. All right, excited to be back at the microphone with some All About HR. I'm fresh off a week in Central America, running around Belize with one of my friends. It was one of the best trips I've ever had. If anyone ever wants to go south, check out somewhere down there. The nicest people, the easiest place I've ever found to get around. The rice and beans is out of this world, as well as the mountains, the ocean. I just can't say enough uh, good things about the country of Belize. So needless to say, I'm back. I'm fired up. And I apologize that you all may have noticed there's an extra week in between us dropping episodes. And now you know why. Probably should have told you ahead of time. But needless, we are back with a fantastic guest this week. Somebody I've met in the Twitter community. Really, it was somebody kind of new. It wasn't straight from the groups I've met from the HR uh, community hashtag or from some of the conferences. It's just somebody I saw pop up. And I just constantly saw them saying really smart things over and over. And I just really aligned with a lot of uh, this person's insight. So our guest today is James Schofield. He's a partner at Roman 3 Solutions, a people and culture training and advisory company dedicated to helping leaders and HR professionals take a systematic approach to assessing and implementing culture change. At Roman 3, James leads the implementation work of coaching leaders and managers to take their tools, resources, and strategies learned in training and apply them to their unique situation. James, welcome to All About HR. Thanks, Tom. I'm really happy to be here and have a conversation. Yeah, these, uh, these conversations are already always more fun for me because I know I'm going to learn something because I've constantly learned from you along the way and you're one of the uh one of the folks i just had to reach out to and get on the show so i'm excited to be uh here and learning from you today awesome i appreciate that i appreciate the kind words yeah and i we even disagreed somewhere a couple months back where you posted something and i don't remember i wish i had remembered this in pre-show prep and i was like nah, i disagree with that and then there was this really good conversation i was like all right perfect now i now i agree more and i think some of it you were like, I see that side too. And it was just one of those perfect back and forth. So I was like, this is why I engage in social with the HR community. It's great. Well, and you have to have those types of conversations, right? Like nobody has all of the right answers all of the time. So opening up a conversation and being okay with being corrected or being wrong that's key. Yeah. And it's everything we do is really nuanced. Like HR, I say all the time, it's not rocket science, but it is very nuanced. And sometimes the tiniest little shift can create the biggest difference. And that's one of the things I really love about this space is you can be 90% wrong, but that 90% right, but that 10% wrong could be the most important 10%. And it's these kind of discussions where the professionals come together. And that's the purpose of the show is where we all come together and start kind of just sanding the edges and constantly trying to like get that extra percentage that'll, that'll make the biggest difference. Yeah. I love it. So I uh, just got back from Belize. I'm in Colorado. Where, where, where are we talking to you from today, James? I'm in Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, it's a beautiful snowy day here in Nova Scotia. 
it's sitting right around zero Celsius. So it's actually warm for March, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty comfortable. Now, do you get a spring? Does that start coming in soon? Or is it like, like Denver, it's, I have two more months of winter for sure. Like, I just know it. Like, it's here. We buy everyone else's full spring by the time we get there. Is it, do you get a spring up in Canada there? We do. We get a spring. Yeah. It's, um, March is going to be, we're going to keep getting hit with uh, storms all through this month. Uh, once we kind of get into April, it will change from lots of snow to lots of rain. And that's our spring. Then May, June, uh, temperatures start rising. It's barbecues and, uh, beach time. You know, that is one of the great things about having a winter. You know, I lived in California for eight years and it was just perfect all the time. It was great. But Mm. there just gets to a point to where when you go through this and then it gets sunnier, just the barbecues are just a little bit sweeter. And I actually really enjoy winter. Uh, there's lots that you can do. We, I live in a rural uh, area in Nova Scotia. So there's lots of tracks, uh, go snowshoeing, hiking, whatever you want. It, there's lots that you can still do, get out and enjoy. And being able to enjoy the same area uh, in different seasons is also kind of cool. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And the key is if you get good equipment, you will be comfortable. I'm out skiing on days that are freezing and I was like, it's so cold. I said, I never thought about being cold at one point out there during the day. So if you get the right stuff, you can go out and do all the stuff and be pretty darn comfortable doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I tell you, bonfires on the beach uh, in the wintertime is amazing. Love it. Just nice, cool air, uh, sea breeze with a uh, roaring bonfire. That's perfect. That's something I can get behind. <laughs> so we're going to we're gonna jump into our first question that we ask everybody, which might be what you're listening to at this bonfire on the beach. But what are you listening to right now? So for fun, uh, I'm rereading the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. It's a great series. My business or my, my commute, what I do to try to increase uh, my own knowledge base. Um, right now, I've gotten into uh, marketing over coffee podcast, uh, which I've really been enjoying because as a partner, I'm responsible for uh, all aspects of the business. Marketing is one where I have had to intentionally seek out some resources and find some good information. And that one's really been speaking to me. Is there any nugget that resonated with you most recently uh, you you can share? Because I think everybody's always trying to learn more about marketing. The biggest things around marketing are not I think it's more the the underlying principles of marketing is just communicating, right? It's a communications effort and understanding any form of communication is going to require uh, understanding your target demographic. So that from a marketing perspective is essential, but it's also something that I can apply as we are you know, using internal communications or our communication strategies with our clients and our um participants in our training programs and understanding and speaking to what they need rather than trying to speak to what I think they want. Yeah. I love that. I think that's, that's what I tell people about sales too. I was like, sales is not a bad word. My definition of sales is enhanced communication. Hmm. And it's very, very similar. How you go about a process, how you steer a process. It's how you communicate people. And if you can communicate better, you can create better processes. If you can solve a problem for somebody, whether you're talking marketing and sales or whether you're talking, you know, uh, in the work that we do around training and development, if we can solve a pain point that they're having, that's how we're going to, you know, build loyalty. That's how we're going to add value to 
Perfect. Yeah, we're we're a hundred percent aligned because that's what we talk about at people. I mean, it's there's a lot of people out there selling platforms. Our goal is to get you solutions so that we have a relationship and that there's real value, and then you know it just perpetuates that. It's a oh, yeah. small tweak, but that mindset makes all the difference uh, in relationships. So tell us a little bit about you know how you created with a partner Roman three. How'd you get there? What was your need, and what are you solving for currently in your role? Uh, working backwards a bit, Roman three is really, it started um, with my partner, Kobe and I really trying to solve some key issues that we had encountered in, in previous uh, roles. So I came from an economic development background prior to starting Roman three, uh, working with primarily small and medium sized uh, businesses across Nova Scotia and trying to help them with everything from, you know, increasing exports to solving labor challenges. Prior to that, I did a lot of one-on-one small business coaching. And again, everything like 95% of the problems that we kept running into with businesses of all sizes was had to do with labor. It had to do with how do I find good people? How do I how do I motivate people? You know, and once I have them, how do I keep them? What can, what do I actually do to, you know, make people want to engage with the work process? Every, every industry, every business has been struggling with, you know, these problems around how do I create an environment where people actually don't dread showing up to work in the morning, right? Right. And so Roman three is really an outpouring from all of that experience, you know, meeting with businesses, talking with businesses, trying to help solve some of the uh, problems that they've been facing. And we really, we take a people-centered approach to everything that we do. We call ourselves a people and culture company because that's largely where our work lives in that people and culture dimension. And really one, what we were seeing is people just following the basic HR or legal compliance piece, right? We're still having the same problems despite all, you know, meeting all of the requirement. What do you think? And this is, this is a question I ask a lot and I, and I don't think there's a right answer, which is why I continue to ask it, but why this all makes sense. We know this to be true. Why is it such heavy lifting? Why are there still this day? So many companies that just refuse to think that way or not even refuse aren't even aware and you have to show them that path one of the biggest contributors i think is that labor problems don't show up on a balance sheet Mm. with other workplace issues you can point to a line item and say we are over here we or there's there's a problem that we've had to address or we've had to um you know we need to invest in new equipment and we see where the equipment line is on you know what we're spending on maintenance on new equipment we have kind of a total of what our labor is and it's everything related to our labor pool our staffing costs kind of get lumped in together and we don't really have a way of there haven't been many good tools to actually articulate that. And we use a concept that we call productivity insulation to help to try to make this clear for a lot of business owners and leaders that there are things that you can do to insulate your productivity in the same way that you insulate your house, right? Oh, I like that. So you're, if you have bad uh, or you know leaky windows or poor efficiency, cracks in your door or foundation, your heat is going to just escape through those cracks, but it's not going to show up on your, on your household budget. 
and kind of the same idea that there are all of these problems that are just leeching your productivity that are just sapping away a lot of money that you're not even necessarily know that you're spending because it's in loss opportunity rather than a specific line item cost. And we've had some, I really like the idea of product insul, uh, productivity insulation because it it is kind of a easy to understand natural example that people can get behind. That's about as well as I've heard that stated to be, to be perfectly honest. And I've been on a, I've been on my high horse about, do you know your cost of turnover? Because mm. I feel like that's one of the places where HR can put a line item in front of people that you can go back to, and then you can back a lot of things into that. Cost of turnover brings recruiting costs, training costs, productivity, time, efficiency. You can put all of these pieces into a line and you can put other things under it. And the number of companies I talk to that just say, we don't have a budget to spend on people and culture. We don't have a budget to spend on employee engagement. We can't afford, those are nice to have. We are running on slim margins. When you can show actual costs that are all they're leaking out of your company, and I think that's one of those places you can do so, it's almost always eye-opening. Always. And all these other things you can't afford to do start looking actually cheap compared to that oh, yeah. number when you can look at it that way. Yeah. And you're spot on. Like there is there and there's a lot of actual data and statistics to support the cost of turnover. There's data and statistics to support the cost of unplanned absences of uh, disengagement and uh, burnout. Burnout's huge, especially COVID or post COVID. Yeah as mental health and burnout have been massive problems in every sector, every industry, everybody who's working is exhausted with everything that's changed and continues to change. There's there's really good research into what these problems are actually costing businesses. So putting together, like we have a, um, a simple uh, calculator tool that we use uh, with businesses to try to articulate, we call it labor value loss. And it, it looks at those types of issues, helping them to determine what they're vulnerable to and how that is actually impacting their bottom line. But you you nailed it. People say that they don't have a budget to address these issues, but you're already spending a ton of money. Yeah. Like put the money in, use your money wisely rather than throwing good money after bad. Ooh, I love that. Throwing good money after bad. We already have some good quotables here, James. This is good stuff. So I think we've covered a pretty good base of like what and why, right? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how. Do you have a process you go to? How do you go about taking this thing in the clouds, people and culture, and turning that into something that can drive success, that can stop that energy from leaking out of your house, as you gave in, in, in your example? Yeah, so we use a uh, process and a, a, um, a framework that we call uh, the workplace culture hierarchy. And it's so I'll give you a little bit of context. Uh, my partner and I, the, one of the reasons why we work so well together is I've done tons of business coaching and he's an adult education specialist. He's got his master's in adult ed and developing critical analysis skills. 
And so taking that approach of how do we actually, what a workplace culture is and how is it built, the workplace culture hierarchy kind of deconstructs the different needs that an organization has. It's modeled after Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but really specific to the workplace. And the way that it works is that you, we start at the compliance level, which is complying not just with uh, your legal requirements or your legal expectations, but how actually complying with uh, your industry and your employee expectations. I like that. So it's it's modeled after and built uh, built upon uh, Frederick Hertzberg's uh, motivation hygiene theory, um, which is all about how do you address the factors of your workplace to reduce or eliminate job dissatisfaction. Uh, so compliance is all about those, the factors of your workplace. And we have seven factors that we talk about. And then those factors need to meet the expectations of being competitive, sufficient, and equitable, right? So compensation is an easy one uh, to wrap our heads around. Compensation needs to be competitive with other organizations in your industry or sector. It needs to be sufficient to accomplish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to provide people with a minimum standard of living that they can in, you know, have some level of comfort and engage in work, the expectation is that your wages or your compensation is going to be sufficient. And then it needs to be equitable. It needs to be equitably available and applied to everybody. And the reason why I wanted to use compensation um, in this talk is because we often get questioned about, well, does that mean that, you know, the CEO and your frontline staff have to be paid the same in order for it to be equal? And the answer is no, right? Different levels of responsibility obviously have, and different skill sets require different levels of compensation, but there needs to be a feeling of equitable um, between uh, people, uh, between if there's vast discrepancy in the hierarchy, that can lead to job dissatisfaction. That's actually a piece that I've thought about a lot. And, and I think you're a perfect person to drill down into with, which is when you talk about pay equity, they, Tom should be paid this and James should be paid that. But I've always been brought up through my career that pay is a mix of a lot of things. It's What's the job require? What experience and skills do you bring to that job? You know, it, it that pay should be a little bit of a different mix for different people in some ways, but there's also the, no, it shouldn't. The job should be the pay. Like, where do you land on that? And how do you help companies figure out that hierarchy? Because you're right. Like, why does a trash guy make less than a finance guy? It comes down to inputs, right? Like, the trash guy may be working twice as hard, or maybe not. I'm just making examples here. But the impact of what the finance person does, they can solve something, and all of a sudden it's now making $200,000 for the company. That's creating more revenue, so their pay is higher. So you know, there's the experience, and then the job titles, and all that. But then there's also the impact on the company. How do you wrap all that in? That's a great question. I love it because it's hard to give a single right answer for, but I'm going to attempt it. Right. <laughs> and I'm not holding you to a single right answer. This is all discussionary, but I think that's a great thing to note as we start uh, down this road for sure. Yeah, no, there's like, it's, it is a great question because it is, it's topical and it's front of mind for a lot of people of how do I treat people equitably while still realizing that there are some position, some jobs, some people who contribute to the success of the organization in different ways. So 
one of the ways that I, so I'll back up. I, I believe that uh, transparency has a large part to do with it. Mm-hmm. Compensation should be transparent. There should be a clear understanding for me as an employee of, okay, if I am at a certain uh, wage or compensation level that's consistent within my level of responsibility, how do, what do I need to do to increase that? Right. Is there, is it, have I kind of topped out the, have I reached the top of my kind of my salary band for last lack of a better word, where, you know, the only way to increase my uh, compensation level is to increase the level of responsibility that I have in the organization, you know, through promotions or, um, you know, looking at new opportunities. Compensation needs to be sufficient. I'm going to go back to the sufficiency piece for a bit because it needs to have all three elements of competitive, sufficient, and equitable. And equitable. I want to take a step back and talk about compensation with all three of those expectations of competitive, sufficient, and equitable, because it's really tough to look at any one dimension solely, because the way that the three work together is important. So you use the example of, you know, a, a custodial position and a finance position. It's pretty easy to wrap our heads around. There are vastly different levels of responsibility um, in those types of positions and the level of responsibility and the impact that a uh, mistake could have on the organization, um, the skill sets that are required for both all of those elements need to be considered in terms of driving compensation. Transparency is a huge part of uh, the equitability piece because if people understand where they fall in terms of a pay scale and how what they can do to increase their uh, compensation within the pay scale, then people feel like a transparent process is more equitable. Right. If you are hiding your wages or compensation from people, or if there's the idea that it's somehow wrong or discouraged to actually have any transparency around pay, the lack of transparency creates uh, anxiety for many people. Or the idea that if I'm not allowed, why am I not allowed to talk about what? A, what the wages are, what are they right. hiding? You know, why am I, am I being vastly underpaid compared to my coworkers who do the same type of job? All that does is create opportunities for misunderstanding and conflict. So transparency can lead to a, is one of the best tools that we have to actually look at the equitable component. Because if everything is laid out and there's a clear process for how things happen, then it is equitable for everybody. The same opportunity exists for everybody. Yeah, I love that. Equitable is not does not mean treating everybody the exact same, right? It's making sure that everybody has equal access and equal opportunity. Yeah, and I think making sure people are aware of what those definitions and the difference of equal, equitable, the same, different, all that, I think that education too wrapped up in this can be really helpful because I think people misinterpret different terms and the application in such conversations is pay here. Yeah, it, it's been a really compliant stage is where a lot of our work with clients happens because it's fairly easy to wrap our heads around. And it's one of where we see many organizations missing the mark, especially if the focus has always been on just maintaining legal compliance. 
then the idea of comparative sufficient and equitable that alone can really make a huge difference in an organization that's experiencing high levels of job dissatisfaction. This has been great. We're going to take a quick pause and we come back. I want to jump back in. I think we've gotten through the uh, the compliance stage of this uh, hierarchy, but I want to get back in, kind of reframe the stages, and then we'll, we'll keep going down this road. We'll be right back. All right. It is time for everyone's favorite 90 seconds, the HR hot sauce. James, are you ready? I'm ready. What's the best job you have ever had? I think the easy answer is this one. Uh, I've started uh, my own business, working with a great team, doing something that I really uh, love. I'll say best job for somebody else is absolutely uh, working in economic development, helping out uh, community and business growth. What's the one phrase at work that drives you nuts? Low hanging fruit. Do you like working on rainy or sunny days? Both, actually. How can someone make your day at work? Oh, coffee. Bring me coffee. I'm good. I'm golden. Best useless skill? I'm having a tough time thinking of an example. I'm not sure if it's because I just have way too many useless skills or what the problem is here. Yeah, I'm going to pass and use that as my non-answer. Salt. Mild, medium, hot, or nuclear? I really want to say nuclear, but once I hit 40, it's more accurate to say hot. You and I are birds of a feather. Favorite interview question to ask or be asked? This is a great one. I actually had a manager who um, asked me this question early on in my career, and I have blatantly stole it uh, from them and used it since. It's, what can I do as your manager to encourage you to stay forever? That was just a great uh, question to be asked because it allowed me to talk about what I need from them, and it kind of gave that that they actually cared. Give me a song that you go to to bring you out of a funk. A single song? I'm not sure. I mean... I am stuck in the 90s. I love, I still love 90s grunge. Give me some Pearl Jam or Soundgarden and I'm golden. All right. That's excellent. You are off the HR hot sauce hot seat. Let's get back to the show. And we're back talking with James. We're talking about creating culture, creating a system that can help drive culture and growth for your organization. So James, you know, now that we took a brief pause bring us back to the stage approach i think we've talked about the compliance but bring us back to base and then we'll and then walk us through at the different stage in this building are for more of a builder approach so the i we talked about compliance and we actually dove into uh, compliance pretty great in the first part the next stage when moving beyond compliance is about psychological safety which is a term that unfortunately is starting to get co-opted a bit into like psychological health and safety. And it, it's every term's getting co-opted. That's just, that's just how it goes. <laughs> I know. As soon as it becomes popular, people spin it for what they need it to be. But at its root, it's a, it's a term that was coined or popularized by Dr. Amy Edmonston, who is a fantastic researcher uh, with uh, Harvard Business School, who has written some great uh, books um, highly recommend the fearless organization one of, it's one of her more recent books but psychological safety is the idea that people are allowed to be vulnerable at work and so are people able to speak up are they able to speak up when they are having a problem are is there a freedom to fail right so a lot of the things that we talk about in this stage is around how do you create an environment where 
people actually own up to mistakes are feel that they can ask for the things that they actually that they need and that they can put themselves in situations where they otherwise would feel vulnerable uh put them kind of the the language put themselves out there right or do people need to hide who they are for fear of you know if i speak up i'm going to be ridiculed or if i share my ideas it's going to be shot down or if i make a mistake somebody's going to blast me for it that is the opposite environment of psychological safety. And how do you train them to do it in a productive way? Because there's lots of people that have good ideas that you want them that may just blurt it out or just say things that are always like pointed. It's not just on opening it up, but I'd imagine there's a way of like, how do you do that? So we, similar to with uh, compliance, we deconstruct it into the locations where psychological safety uh, needs to be present. Um, so there needs to be psychological safety in professional discourse. Do people have the op- the ability to engage in uh, professional discussions and disagree in a way that actually leads to some productivity rather than just finger pointing and arguing? Um, what I'll say with psychological safety is that the biggest influencer of how this plays out is on the direct supervisor. So this is something that needs to, uh, if HR is going to champion, that it needs to be reinforced to the management, to the frontline managers who are interacting with people on a regular basis or in their teams. And it does require a lot of uh, contextual information around when is it appropriate to speak up? When is it? So actually asking for people's opinions at certain times or asking for people to provide feedback at certain times is one way that you can begin to train the behaviors that you want. Psychological safety, the reason why it's the second stage of the hierarchy is because if people don't feel like they can speak up and share and that they're free to fail and make mistakes because failure isn't an all it's not really a terrible thing unless you were talking gross negligence which is something else entirely entirely but failing forward is a great thing yeah it, it is right because if we help people to learn from the mistakes that they've made then ideally they don't make those same mistakes in the future but it's also a hugely important if you're trying to get any information out of people if you're trying to engage with your uh, employees and like if you're doing any type of surveying or you know engagement strategies where you're looking for feedback if there's no psychological safety the information that you collect you can't trust yep because people don't feel safe to actually tell you what's wrong. We spend a lot of time on that topic over in my neck of the woods. <laughs> I bet. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm just going to say yes. All right. So we'll we'll talk about the next stage. So the third stage is about inclusion. And it's inclusion is not only a diversity, equity, inclusion initiative. Inclusion is about making people feel like they belong at work. It's the idea of belonging and it's belonging for their authentic self, for who they are. It's belonging for their perspectives and it's belonging for their abilities, right? So it's, we talk a lot about inclusion and I love talking about inclusion because it's central to, it's where we, with compliance and psychological safety, it's largely, um, we're largely looking at how do we fix a lot of job dissatisfaction or a lot of the uh, things that make people want to leave 
jobs. When we get to inclusion and then engagement, it's how do we make people really feel connected to the work, connected to each other, and that they want to actually stay, uh, that we can create a pull that draws people to us. Yeah, I love that. And inclusion is central to that because in our, the way that we talk about the hierarchy, you can't move into an, you can't create engaged employees if people don't feel like they belong at work, right? If somebody feels like they're an outsider, if they feel like they have to, that they can't be themselves and that they have to conform to some uh, norm rather than be who they are. Now, obviously we're still talking about there's professional standards and we've had this conversation of authentic self is not an excuse to be a jerk, right? Your, your authentic self is that you are rude and you make incredibly inappropriate comments and jokes. Yeah, no, that's still not acceptable, but are we allowing people to be themselves with all of their weirdness intact? Yeah. Can you have tattoos and do a great job? Yes. Yeah. Do you have to force them to cover it up? The other piece I love is that the DEI, I see that all the time and I always feel guilty when I don't put the DEIB at the end because that inclusion, belonging, connection, I think is the most important piece of all of that for whatever your diversity, whatever your background, whatever your role, whatever your company type is, if you create inclusion, you can help create belonging and then drive yourself down to that next step of engagement. Well, and we always say that inclusion without belonging is integration, right? It's merely putting people in the same room together. That's not inclusion. That is integration. If people don't, the belonging is what makes it inclusion. And we've, a lot of our conversations and the reason why I started saying it's not just a DEI effort is because oftentimes when we're talking about DEI initiatives, we think that if we have a diversity initiative and we create an, the factors for equality, then inclusion is a natural byproduct of those things. But inclusion is its own stage. It is its own thing that will enhance everything else that you do. There's a great a uh, quote from Khalil Smith, who's with the Neural Leader Institute, who said, diversity without inclusion is merely a revolving door of talent. I love that. Yeah. I was actually sitting here thinking, there's a lot of really good quotable things to pull out of this. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to make a blog to go along with this, I think. So let's get into that engagement step now. Yeah. I know how we create engagement and we've done a lot of podcasts. I don't think we need to get like super wide on the engagement, but I do want to hear your take because it, you have very well thought out pieces for all of this. So once you've created that inclusion and the outcome of belonging, which I love, now you move to engagement. What's that look like? So we actually, when we're talking about engagement, we distinguish between engaging with employees and creating engagement in employees. And our goal is to create engagement in employees. We want employees who are engaged in the process, not the social media term of engagement of how many people have interact or how many people we have interacted with. So when we're talking about engagement, we break it down into four areas uh, that we call RAMP because everything needs to have an acronym. Uh, so it's recognition, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And so each of those four areas have we then talk break down further into you know what 
Um, how do you create recognition or appreciation in the workplace? How do you create autonomy at work? So we, in autonomy, we talk a lot about the idea of, you know, the way to build autonomy is through uh, trust and you build trust through providing limited freedoms, right? Operational requirements always need to be thought, need to be considered in all of this, but how are we allowing people some measure of um, agency over what they do? Mastery is really the idea of using, identifying, using, and developing skills, right? So, you know, if everybody has to take the exact same training, uh, then that's not really valuing skills, right? It's you, if everybody's just given the same training all the time, you create generic employees. But if you can identify, use, and value the skills that you have and, uh, or develop the skills that you have in your teams, then that's how you, when people are able to, when they feel like they are valued and are using the skills that they have and that you as an employer actually actually want to invest in their skill development, that's a big contributor to creating engagement. And the last one is purpose, uh, which is my favorite topic because I've seen how radically purpose can change. And we're not just talking about the big picture, aspirational, we want to change the world purpose, which those are great and they're fantastic for inspiring motivation. But if you want to sustain motivation, then it really, you need to connect the day-to-day actions to the way that people connect and find purpose. I love, uh, I love the ramp (laughs) and you're right. Everything does need to be an acronym. Yeah. Like their psychological safety, I'm waiting for like psychological quitting. I think they've already given it another name, but I'm sure that'll come back at some point. Oh, no doubt. The the whole uh, buzzword uh, HR problem of the week, quiet quitting, quiet firing, quiet hiring, quiet whatever. Just, just uh, us trying to get eyeballs. That's <laughs> why we try to steer clear. So you've got the engagement. Yeah. What's the final step here? Like where, 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 where do you go now that you've built this uh, really strong, wide structure? So the top of the hierarchy is what we call strive and it's striving for success, striving for continued success. And it's linked to organizational success. So in strive, we're talking about an organization's ability to capitalize on internal growth external growth. So, uh, you know, you're increasing your market share, increasing your internal capacity. How ready are you as an organization? If a big opportunity comes along, can you, do you have the foundational framework that will allow you to capitalize on these successes? It's also about collaboration. It's about change management. Uh, you know, the, the big outcomes that often, provide a lot of difficulty or challenges for businesses. I mean, change management is a huge one. It's something like only 34% of change is actually considered successful, which is atrocious. <laughs> like there's some, there's a lot of work. It is, but it still seems higher than I expected. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is all types of change, right? Uh, whether you are implementing something fairly simple, like a new CRM, which still has a lot of challenges 
to it, or you're talking large sweeping organizational change with new new leadership and new directions coming in play, or you know a merger or an acquisition. The the statistics around the success of change is kind of scary because we focus so much on the process of change rather than making sure that the people are ready to change. So strive every everything that we do is about the people, right? Making sure that the people and the processes are aligned and bringing them to improving them and bringing them along together. And at Strive is where really where we see the the phenomenal outcomes of improved the improved ability to uh, innovate or to collaborate or to manage change effectively or you know to increase market share or internal growth. This has been great. And I think this points back to where I think business in general went a little bit wrong back in kind of the the 60s, maybe the 50s, when it went from a stakeholder model to a shareholder model. And when we can get back to taking care of the stakeholders, you're going to get better outcomes rather than the first thing I was told when I first started my career 20 plus years ago, which was we owe it to our shareholders to do the best job we can. And I remember thinking, well, the heck with that. They owe it to me. <laughs> I'm making them their dang money. And yeah. I think that, and this is just me on my personal limb here, but I think that's where we've gone wrong. And I think structure like you're talking about building or, or you do build for organizations helps realign organizations with that proper stakeholder thinking that if you take care of the stakeholders, you're going to get better business outcomes, less absenteeism, less turnover, better productivity, longer tenure better outcomes, better results for those shareholders. I'm not an anti-shareholder. I just think focusing on them is not the way to get make business better. Focusing on the people that drive those successes are. And you gave us a framework to help do that. You, I, I love it because we always say that you can do the right thing for the right reason and still make money, right? Nobody here is opposed to organizations, to businesses being profitable. That's what we're all after. That's what we're, you know, that's, good but you need to take care of the people as well and that's that's really at the heart of everything that we try to do at Roman 3 I think that's a perfect place to stop we can't probably say anything better than that James uh, I'll put it in the notes but where can our listeners find you So you can find me on Twitter James from Roman 3 we have also plug our podcast we have a we do an episode every two weeks please diagnosing the workplace where we talk about a lot of these issues that and dive into a lot of these challenges i've watched it on youtube it's great yeah we've got uh youtube if you can't get enough of my voice i'm sorry for you but uh we've got lots of material out there that you can find also check us out at uh, roman3.ca I'll put those links. James, it was an absolute pleasure to connect with you on the podcast. Laura, who's on mute, thank you as always, producing the show, putting a lot of this together. Always a pleasure. Great to be back with another episode where I've learned all about HR. We'll see you back next time. Take care. Understand, engage, inspire, and retain your people like never before. People Elements Employee Experience and Engagement Solution delivers powerful intelligence, giving you the confidence to act. To learn how you can gain a better understanding of your employees, please visit us at peopleelement.com.